and we can begin today. We are in part two of a five-part series to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, the book right before Matthew in the New Testament. And this is, in many respects, one of the last major prophets, last major messages God left the nation of Israel before the time between the Testaments where there was so much silence and the next prophet that would come on the scene was John the Baptist initiating that the Messiah was here. And this is a dramatic time in Israel's history and it's a very powerful message and I don't want to pretend that today's message is going to be lighthearted. It's not. It's going to be very serious, uh, very, very strong because God is going to hold Israel to task. And so I called today's lesson an unfaithful community when God calls Israel on their adulterous hearts. As we begin, I need you to understand two concepts. If you take notes, grab the pen on the seat in front of you, begin to write two words down because I want to burn them into your mind. Because if you do not understand these two concepts, you will miss everything that God is trying to share with you, I believe, today through this message. We're just going through chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. I want you to write these two words down. The first word is wholeness. Wholeness. You can also write the word integrity if that makes more sense to you. Wholeness or integrity would be the first concept. The second concept that I would like you to understand today is interconnectedness. If that's too long, write interrelated. Alright, how we tie together. These two concepts are crucial to what God is trying to say through Malachi. So I want to give you a couple analogies. Let's talk about wholeness or integrity for a moment. Um, we've all heard the most popular phrase that says a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Now, why do they say that? That is an issue of integrity. In other words, if there is a weakness in one portion of it, the whole is in danger. Does that make sense? You can pull on a chain. Every other link could be very strong. But if there is one link that is weak, the chain will snap and that breaks down the integrity. Well, we've had other such analogies. Imagine uh, your tire. When your tire blows out, does it all the tire or is it just one weak spot in your tire? Almost always, you're traveling on a 99% excellent tire, a 99% solid tire, but there is one weakness in the tire. But when it blows, you lose the whole tire and possibly control of your car. But in order to make it a little bit more uh, dramatic for, for the sake of today's lesson, imagine this wall behind me as a dam. A dam holding back a wall of water that if it were to break through, it would flood all of us and kill all of us. And in there, it's just made of bricks, individual bricks lying together. And let's say it has 3,000 large bricks that contain this massive wall. And I can suggest to you, growing up, I grew around Folsom Lake and the dam. And as a little kid, we always had stories that went around. The dam's going to break. It's going to flood everybody, you know. And of course, I was on the other side of it. And so what did I care? So it flooded by everybody else. But anyway, I thought it would have been fascinating. So the idea is that if you could have in a 3000 brick wall, you could have 2999 solid bricks that are amazingly manufactured. They're perfect in every way. But if you have one brick, all together, they're being held together. All together, they're holding back the water. You could have one brick that is weak, and if that brick pops out, it creates an undue pressure on the other bricks that they were never prepared for. They begin to break out. When they break out, it begins to put an undue pressure on the bricks around them, and the whole wall comes down. 
That is the concept of wholeness or integrity. Sound throughout. The second concept is interconnectedness or interrelatedness. Have you ever heard the phrase ecosystem? All right. Uh, If you were a fifth grader, you'd know the answer to that. Uh, As you're growing up, you're taught what an ecosystem is, what it means. And what it means is uh, everything is related to everything else in our world. You'd look and you would say, uh, whether it's the chain, the food chain, you know, where it's a little fish gets eaten by the bigger fish and the bigger fish gets eaten by. You remember, you went through this whole thing. We are interrelated that you can't even change certain uh, vegetation without it affecting human beings. You understand that, yeah? We talk about all the time, it's very popular in PC to talk about the raising or tearing down of the rainforest. Well, how far is the rainforest from us right now? Really, really, really far. What does it matter? What does it matter if, and they begin to argue out through this whole thing about why it's happening and global warming's a fraud and global warming's legit. What does it matter if the polar bears run out of ice room? What does it have to do with us here in Sacramento, here in Folsom, here in Roseville? What, what does it have to do with us? A lot. Why? Because we are all interrelated. You may hate mosquitoes, but little frogs like mosquitoes or fish like mosquitoes. And so even though it drives you crazy, they feed off that and you end up liking something down the road. The deal is, is everything is interrelated and everything you do is interrelated with everybody else. All right. God operates, designs, and engages with us in a holistic manner, meaning an entire manner. He looks at every aspect of our lives, but what we want to do in our lives is compartmentalize. We want to believe that we can be excellent in eight areas and be maybe horribly faulty in two, but we're still a good person. That is not correct. The Bible says that if we break one law, we are a lawbreaker and we are guilty of the whole. Whenever you discuss things with God, he's going to talk about them all the way across the board as one large interconnected piece. When children are hurt, we are hurt. Amen. Amen. We understand this concept. God is about to come flying down on Israel for these very reasons. Would you turn with me? To Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, page 676 in the Bibles that were handed to you. 676. And then I'm going to give you the fill in the blank in front of you. There are two parts to this lesson today. One is to understand the priests and true worship. God will hold them to task. And the other is dealing with the community in general. And we're going to be talking about the issue of divorce and unfaithfulness amongst the community. These are very touchy subjects. Uh, this is a very, very popular chapter. Um, if you've ever heard the phrase, God hates divorce, you got it from what we are going to study today. It's the only time he ever says that in Scripture. It's right here, and it is a very, very difficult passage. I don't pretend to understand it all. Um, Interpretation-wise and in the Hebrew, it's absolutely confusing, but we'll find our way through it, and we'll see if we can understand what God has for us today. Have you turned there? Excellent. Let me give you the fill in the blank in front of you. It is this. Faithlessness in one area creates chaos in another. Faithlessness in one area creates chaos in another. Of course, speaking of integrity and interrelation. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Let me just read those verses first and then we'll pray for the word together. It begins like this. 
And now this admonition is for you, O priest. If you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. All right, then God's angry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and allowing us to dive into your word. And even though, Father, we are opening up mail to Israel that is harsh, that is strong, that is, that is violent in many ways, that, Lord, you are spewing out your truth and your righteousness, and we don't quite know what to do with it. I ask that you would allow us to soak in and allow parts to cut to the heart that need to be understood and applied to our lives and leave the rest for another day. I ask, Lord, that you would help those of us that have wounded hearts and hurt hearts, that as we hear the message today, we would not hear a message of doom, but a message of hope, a message of importance, a message of value. May we leave changed people and may you be honored in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen. He begins like this, and now this admonition is for you, O priest. We're going to be talking about the priest for the next uh, few minutes together. And if you don't understand the priesthood, none of this stuff makes sense. Let me give you a few analogies to bring it together. The way that things were designed in ancient Old Testament world for Israel was that there was uh, a group of people known as the priests and a group of people known as the Levites. How you define the Levites is simply this. They were the aides to the priests. Okay, so you have priest guy. And his worker, his helper, that's a Levite. Levites were Levites by birth. They descended from one of the sons of Jacob. You remember Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 sons were born to Jacob. That's the, where we get the guy Joseph from and all his brothers, where he was sold into slavery and he led the people to be healed in Egypt. If you remember all these different stories about Joseph, this is one of the sons of Israel. Well, he had a number of sons. The third son that he had was named Levi. Levi was an interesting character. The first time he comes on the scene, he revenges his sister for being raped and slaughters a whole city with his brother Simeon. These are tough folks. These are not average little pansy guys. These are very, very strong, mean, nasty guys. All right. He, the first time he comes on the scene, he gets rebuked and his dad gets really, really mad at him for doing what he did. He say, but he, he was just trying to get him back for what they did to his sister. Right. Did he need to slaughter the whole town? Okay, probably not. A little kind of overkill. So Levi doesn't come on to the scene real good. But through his lineage came some guys that you'll know their names. And that's Moses and Aaron. Everybody familiar with Moses and Aaron? They were Levites. They came through the tribe of Levi. Now Moses was one of the greatest prophets ever. And the Jewish people hold him up as, a, as one of the big dogs of the faith. One of the patriarchs of the faith. Well, Moses and Aaron were heralded out as special to God. Moses had one special calling, but then Aaron's lineage was what the priests came through. If you were related to Aaron, you were a priest. If you were just a Levite, you were a helper. Are we all following this? 
But you say, so what's the big deal? So what? You grow up being a temple helper. That shouldn't be a big deal. Ah, but it is. Let me tell you this. Let's say we are a family together and we're a community. Just this room, these two rooms together. And I told you that I was going to select out ten of you. Ten out of all these hundreds of people. Ten of you will have the opportunity to be with God. I knew where God was. God's in the back room. And you would be able to handle all the stuff on stage. You're real close to God. Nobody else had any access to God. No one else had any access to the utensils that were used in worship of God. Just you ten. Would you think that was a special job? Yeah, you were closer to God than everybody else. Then I said, out of those ten, I'm going to select three of you and I'm going to call you priests. And what I'm going to allow you to do is you will have access to the Bible. You will tell us all what God says and how he says it. You will be very special. You'll be able to do things directly connected to God personally. You will hand things to the person that will get them to God and you will be super close to God. Would that be kind of a cool job? Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. One of the three out of the ten, I would say, I will call you the high priest, and one time of the year, you get to go hang out with God. You will walk into the back room, and you will be in the very presence of the Almighty Yahweh. As you minister before Him, His whole intense presence, or a portion of His presence, will descend upon the place, and you will be in the very room of the Creator of the universe. Would that be cool? All right. That's why these guys became superstars. Because when you have that job title, everybody wants to hang out with you. The Levites were very important. As a matter of fact, the tribe of Levi, out of all the tribes, didn't get their own land. They had to be spread out to minister all over the place. But they lived off the tithes and offerings of people. And it was a pretty blessed job to have. You were given a lot of things. You had a lot of wealth. You had a lot of this. You could hang out in the temple. You were taken care of very well. You were honored and respected in society. And you received a lot of prestige. Because nobody else could be you. They weren't born in the right family. So you were special. With great benefit comes great responsibility, yeah? If you are responsible for communicating the God of the back room to everyone here, is that a serious job that you need to take serious? What would happen if you just started screwing around and didn't bother doing your job? What would happen? Nobody gets to hear from God. You just shut down the pipeline and channel to the Almighty. You think that's a serious offense? God does. And he's about to rip them apart because they didn't take it seriously. He says this, and now this admonition is for you, O priests, meaning priests and Levites together. At this time, there was almost no distinction. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I'll send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. He's talking about worship. You see, prior to Israel being obliterated as a nation and being carried into captivity, by the Assyrian nation and the Babylonian nation, they had problems in their church as well. In the temple, they were doing everything right. Their sacrifices were just perfect, and they had all their T's crossed and their I's dotted, and they did everything perfect, but they did it for the wrong reason. Their hearts were far away from God, and they did it just as a fire insurance policy. They just wanted God to be nice to them. They didn't want to make him mad, so they did everything perfect. 
after they're back in the land and trying to get started again, now they don't even care. They're not doing worship right, and they don't care. The priests are allowing diseased animals to be sacrificed to God. Priests are allowing everyone to do whatever they want. The priests have completely ignored the law, have no idea what God is saying, is teaching no one, living debaucherous life, turning to injustice, being corrupt, and these are the most godly people? Are you kidding me? That's the environment that we're living in. And God said, if you do not restore proper worship, if you do not bring my word to the people accurately, I will curse you and I will curse your blessings. Now, we don't talk in terms of curse anymore. It just sounds weird. It kind of of sounds archaic. It sounds weird. You don't ever hear me, I will curse you. You're like, what? That's dumb. You can't curse me. What are you going to put a hex on me? What are you going to do? Right? Here's how it works with God. Do you realize that every good gift that you have is from God? Have you all read that in Scripture? Are we all familiar with that? Okay, let's think about it practically. If you have brains, they came from God. Okay. If you have a job, it came from God. If you have any blessings or children, they came from God. You are here in lap of luxury, sitting in comfortable seats in an air-temperatured uh, room because God was kind to you. You are blessed by God. When God curses you, instead of making bad things happen, a lot of the time He just shuts off the faucet. And all of a sudden, things don't start going so well. All of a sudden, Israel began to look around and their crops were dying. Why were their crops dying? Because God said, I'm not watering them. The rain stopped. Their animals began to miscarry. Problems began to erupt. And their nation began to fall into disrepair. And God said, you want to know why? You're not honoring my name. I shut the faucet off. That's why. No, it's not an accident. And you go, oh God, do you not care? Do you not see we're in trouble? I see you're in trouble. I made you in trouble. It's pretty obvious to me. I'm your problem. You're bad. I'm punishing you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm just being mean to you. Are we all clear on that? All right. I will curse you and curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed you because you have not set your heart to honor me. What does he mean? People had lost so much respect for the Levitical line and the priesthood, they stopped giving offerings to the temple, and those people were known as total disrespect. So he said, and by the way, your horrible situation is not by accident either. People disrespect you because you're garbage, and I have turned them to disrespect you. So if you think that somehow, because you're trying to use it as an excuse, God, I don't want to serve your name because you're not doing anything for me. I'm not doing anything for you because you're not serving my name. Can we get the cart before the horse? I mean, put the horse before the cart. Can we please turn things around? You're missing it. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants, meaning I will tear down the priesthood and I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. What's that? Here's the nicest way I can say it. This is how it's defined in the Bible. It's the contents of the sacrificial animals' intestines. Okay, when you step in it, it's called... All right, fantastic, there you go. Okay, he said, when you sacrifice these bogus animals and you treat me with disrespect, I'm going to scoop this stuff out and I'm going to shove it all over your face. Wow. That's a mad God. Okay? We all got that. His point was, the minute that stuff touches your face, 
You are unfit to be a priest. You're unclean. You can't even be in the temple. Get out of here. And you are now fit for only the dung heap, which is outside the city gates. You will go from prestige title, because you didn't take it serious, to the lowest of low, and I'll throw you out in the garbage dump. That's how serious God is. Why? Look at the next phrase. You will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue. All right. So we've talked about the fact that Levi started out bad. Where did this covenant come from? First of all, there is no biblical recording of God establishing a covenant with Levi at all. Okay. It's not written down. It's probably oral tradition that they brought over. Everybody knew that God had established a covenant with Levi. We just don't know when. There is only one story that speaks to why Levi would even be considered a good guy. And here's the story. It's called the golden calf incident. Y'all remember this? All right, here's what happened. Moses is up on top of the fiery Mount Sinai, receiving the very Ten Commandments of God, talking to God face to face like he would a friend. Joshua is waiting halfway down the mountain. Meanwhile, the rest of Israel is down at the bottom of the mountain and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Over a month has passed. They think Moses is dead. They think God burned him up and they need to get going. They're tired of sitting around. They grab Moses' brother Aaron and said, Aaron, you need to do something. Your brother's a little crispy critter at the top. He's never coming down. We need to get going. You've got to bring us another God. You can make it quasi into God, but we need to go a different direction, man. This isn't working. So Aaron gathers up all this gold together, fashions a golden calf, they set it up on an altar, and they have a huge party about the new direction that they're going. Meanwhile, Moses comes down. Moses comes down halfway down the mountain, he's got the Ten Commandments, he's all pumped, he's just been in the presence of God, he's glowing because he's been in righteousness and holiness for the last 40 days of his life. He comes down from God, sees Joshua, and he says, are we at war? Okay, I hear something's really, really loud. What's going on with the camp? Joshua goes, I think it's a party. I'm sorry, there's a party. What are we celebrating? I don't know. I've been sitting here waiting for you. Okay, let's go take a look. They come walking down. Now, you can imagine, this is one of those things where the party is rocking. Everybody's going crazy. This is debauchery to its highest degree. You got the little guy on the turntables. All of a sudden... All of a sudden, Moses walks in, scared, it just stops. It's like, boss came home. Uh-oh. Everybody parts. Moses comes walking through. I'm sorry, what are we celebrating? And what's that thing? What are we doing, guys? I was gone for 40 days, and now I come back, and this is what you're doing. Aaron, come here. What's happening? Whew, uh, good news, bad news. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's a long story. You probably don't want to hear about it. Aaron, what is the gold cow doing up there? I don't know. It's just kind of sitting there. <laughs> it's a, It doesn't move, Moses. It's just kind of... It's not like animatronic or anything. Aaron, where'd the cow come from? Okay, weird story. Um, we gathered all this gold and we threw it in the fire and poof, out came a cow. It was so odd. I know. I didn't believe it myself. Okay, Nobody believes this guy. That was his literal excuse written in Scripture. Like, are you a moron? So then that's when Moses just goes, you're an idiot, stand over there. The rest of you, I want everyone to stand up that's responsible for this. Stand up right now. I'm one man. What do you, you can take me right now. Stand up and show me who did this. And a bunch of people began to rise up and stand up. 
And they got a little bit nervous because Moses is the guy that parted the Red Sea. I mean, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. They stood up and they're like, well, we could take him. We're done with you. We're going our own way. We're going our own direction. They all begin to stand up in cocky arrogance and they stand before Moses and say, we are done with you. Your job over. We're going with Aaron. New route. Moses said, is that true? I have one more question for you. Everyone that still believes in Yahweh and wants to represent his name and you stand for holiness, come over to my side right now. And only one tribe responded. Who was it? Levi. The Levites stood up and walked over to Moses' side and sat there. We're with you. What do you want us to do? I want you to kill them all. Drew out their swords, ran in, began to slaughter everybody that was standing. That is the only story that we have on record of Levi standing for righteousness and his people. God established a covenant and he's about to personify the whole priesthood and Levite lineage in a man named Levi. And he begins to talk about how it used to be when they were good. You will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, meaning the priesthood and the Levites. A covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him, meaning they knew me intimately. They lived in blessing. This only called for their reverence of my name. He revered me. He stood in awe of my name, meaning filled with terror in Hebrew, meaning he saw the amazing, wonderful, magnificent miracles that I wrought. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. That was him. That was the good guys. And now let's talk about you. But you, you have turned away from the way and by your teaching, you have caused many to stumble. Why did they cause many to stumble from their teaching? Because they forgot all about it. They didn't read the word of God. They didn't have any clue what they're talking about. And they twisted it for their own gain. He said this, you have violated the covenant with Levi says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. God's angry at the priests. Are we all getting that? But now He turns around to the congregation, to the people of Israel. He says, you think that I'm only going to hold them accountable? You think that you're not responsible? What are you doing? Do you see how you're living? He says this, have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Meaning, are we not a unified community under God? Are we not the same family of men? Are we not Israel? Then why do we profane the covenant of our fathers that they received at Sinai by breaking faith with one another? In other words, if we are family, why are we treating each other like garbage? Why are you lying to one another? Why are you cheating on one another? Why are you gossiping about one another? Why is this occurring in our family? He says. Judah, meaning Israel in general, has broken faith. And he said, let me tell you what I'm talking about. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. What does he mean by sanctuary? Almost always it refers to the temple. In this case, it's different. What does he mean? He means Israel. The community of God's people, the treasured possession of the Lord. You're ruining the community by how you're living. You have married the daughter of a foreign God. Real quick, basic analogy. When my daughters get married, who do I get hooked to? Her husband and his parents, right? His family. It's, that's the whole idea that when you're at um, a ceremony and they light the two candles, it's families coming together. Y'all understand this? Are we talking? Is this pretty not rocket science? Okay, great. Two families get united together. Do you get to pick your spouse of your child? No, you would totally choose differently. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to say it out loud. I'll say it for you. Um, when you get united with these other people, you now have a strange family that's now your family. It's kind of like, I didn't choose you, but I guess now we're going to hang out together. All right, fantastic. God said, when you intermarry with the Canaanite people in the pagan lands and you guys get married, guess who I'm now family with? And I don't want to be family with a demon. I don't want demons in my family. I don't want devils running in my house. I don't want these people around. You are actively marrying active pagan members of society and you're marrying them to me and that's not okay. I told you when we walked into the promised land, do not intermarry with the Canaanite people. Did I not? Was I not clear? Did I not say it eight million times in Scripture? Did I not tell you through all the prophets, do not intermarry with the people around you because we have a special job to do. We are the salt and light of the world. But what did they do? Completely ignore him and went off and married. But here's the problem. All the guys that are getting married to these pagan women, they were already married. To who? Israeli women. Because they just came back into the land. But now you have nothing. You're a little tiny city. You've only just rebuilt the walls with Nehemiah. You're just trying to get your community started. So all the pagans own all the good land and everyone around you has everything. So the only way to get more stuff is to intermarry through the marriages so you can get more land. In order to do that, you've got to marry their daughters. Oops, now you have two options. You either have now two wives or you ditch the first one. Are we all following the story? This is what is occurring. You have married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, meaning excommunication, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. In other words, he may play the game of church. He may come in and try to play like he's a good guy and he can compartmentalize and say, who I marry has no bearing on my spiritual life. But guess what? Everything's interconnected. Integrity means I will hold you accountable for every aspect of your life. No, you're not a good person because you got eight out of the ten. You're a wretched person and you're only saved by grace. That's the truth. Do not play a game with me, God says. He said this, Another thing you do, Israel... You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask me why. They were literally clueless. 
God, I come into your temple. You never answer my prayers. You never hear me. I feel like I'm completely speaking to the wall. None of the blessings shower down on my life. I feel like I'm completely lost, all alone, and abandoned. What is wrong with you? God said, what's wrong with me? No, what's wrong with you? Oh, you cry a lot. You're right. I'm not blessing you. You're sad. I'm making you sad. And you want to know why? You ask me why. You don't know why. Really? Well, then let me tell you. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Because you're divorcing haphazardly and I'm sick of it and I'll shut you down. That's why. You're treating your wife like garbage and I don't want to hear your prayers. I don't want to get your offerings. I want you to go home. I want you to figure it out. And I want you to start treating your wife differently. Let me ask you a quick question. How hard is it to love the neighbor kid that's mean to your kid? You think that how you treat your wife doesn't impact God? Do you understand the Bible says your prayers are blocked when you treat your wife like garbage? Because that's his daughter. You don't treat his daughter like garbage and expect to get something from his hand. He says, I'll use my hand. But I don't think in a way that you want me to. Ladies, the only reason that men are addressed here, and you think that you got off the hook, the only reason men are addressed here is because in ancient Israel, only men could divorce. You had no option. You tried to leave your husband and go hook up with someone else. You were stoned to death. You had no option. So if he's going to address divorce, he's always going to address men. Women were all dead. So if he's going to make the law, he began to talk to the men. The men did have ways to get divorced in ancient Old Testament Israel. But God makes something extremely clear. Jump down for a moment to verse 16. He says what? Well, let's back up into verse 15 for a moment. So guard yourself in the spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, said the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. That's pretty clear. I hate divorce, he said. Do you understand that we as a congregation are, by all conservative estimates, over 40% divorced? You get that? I know what I'm talking to. I know who I'm talking to. I'm the product of divorce. Everyone in my whole family has been divorced. Multiple marriages. All over the place. That's all I grew up in. That's all I know. When I grew up in Capital Christian School, they actually had us one time. They couldn't do this now. But back when I was young, they had us raise our hands and say, how many of you are from divorced families? I swear to you, over 80% of the class raised their hand. Okay, that's at a Christian school. Here's the deal. I get the seriousness and the sensitivity of divorce. Many of you have been rocked by divorce, hurt by divorce. Yet I must explain to you something very clearly. I want you to know why God hates divorce. I know, as a man, why you got divorced. I get it. If I'm in the counseling room with you, I bet you by the time you finish your story, I would have wanted to get divorced. I get it. But I want you to know why God cares so much. It all comes down to verse 15. 
the most confusing book, uh, confusing phrase in Hebrew in the whole book. No one knows quite what it means. Check this out. This is what it says in Hebrew. You ready? Literally, this is how it reads. Not one he has made. He has a residue of the spirit. And what the one? There you go. All right. Fantastic. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Okay. Let me give you, to make it short, I could give you all the reasons why, but the bottom line is I ripped off a bunch of intelligent people. Here's my translation of what I believe it says after all the research that I did. Here you go. Has God not made one in man and wife? Those who are in his image, having a portion of his spirit, meaning being like God. Why did he do so? Because he wants a godly people of his own. Let me give you five reasons why God thinks marriage is so important. If you want to write these down, write them down. I'll tell you right now. Here we go. Number one, marriage is God's intent to represent himself more fully. In other words, when man and woman come together, God is, looks more clear. The male side of God, the female side of God are represented together and he is demonstrated more clearly in unity, just like the Trinity is. We all follow in that? God is represented more clearly. Number two, to have his kingdom played out on earth. Remember in the Lord's prayer, he says, and may things be here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember that? That's what your home is supposed to be. Your home is supposed to be a small little kingdom where God reigns and where things occur like they do occur in heaven. We got that? Number three, marriage means to make a godly people, meaning to raise children in the Lord. It's a place where you're supposed to make more believers. Number four, to be a place of blessing. God will shower down his blessings many times through your spouse, through your children. It will be a place of blessing. Number five, a place of change. It will be your primary chisel to screw up your life. We all following that? You are not getting married just for happiness, but for holiness. You understand? That's why it's so hard. So let me share you this. Here's the four reasons God hates divorce. The four reasons why God hates divorce. Number one, it breaks a covenant that he locked down. It breaks a covenant he locked down, thereby thereby spurning his leadership and authority. When we get divorced, we say, I don't care what you lock down. I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. That puts you above God. That's why God has an irritation with it. Number two, it harms his children. Everyone involved in a divorce hurts. The one that does the divorcing, the one that is left, and all the other parties involved. Everyone hurts. No one walks out of a divorce unscathed. Everybody hurts, and God doesn't want his people to hurt. Number three, it disrupts the unity of the community. The Holy Spirit set down. The Bible says that Christ and his church are united, and when the church is torn apart, it's a violation of Christ. It disrupts us. Why? Because we're all interconnected. And you go, it has nothing to do with it. Really? When you left your wife and you fought with your wife, guess who picked up the pieces? Me. You've gone somewhere else. I'm doing it. That doesn't affect me. What does it matter how you handle your personal life? Because my staff, myself, and your community has to raise your family. That's why it's a big deal. It disrupts us. Number four, it displays an improper view of God to the world. It makes him look stupid. Because now we have Christian believers separating from one another and the rest of the world looks at him and goes, see, told you so. All right. 
I want you to understand something that I know very well. These are not moving reasons. God can very rarely tell us the real reason why he's doing things because we're too immature to understand. Here's why we think divorce is bad. Okay? It's because someone's not nice to someone else. That's not the reason. Let me give you an analogy. Do you understand that there's two reasons why God hates murder? The top two reasons that God hates murder don't even enter into our minds. Why do you hate murder? We just ask you that. I'll tell you why I hate murder. You ready? For two reasons. I hate murder because it's mean. It's hurting somebody else, right? That's why we don't like it. That's mean. You can't just kill somebody. That's mean. Two, it's not fair. You don't have a right to shut down somebody else's life. They have a right to live and you can't shut them down. Do you understand that those two reasons are not even on God's radar? God's like, I kill people all the time. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not really that big of a deal, actually. Uh, no, I, I'm not too concerned about that. Do you understand? Here's God's two main reasons why he hates murder. It violates the image of God because he built that and you're not allowed to touch that. Does that make sense? So number one, when we look at murder, it's you can't defame God's image. And number two, God has a right over life and you don't. You're not king. You're not allowed to pick who lives and dies. That's God's role. And you're not allowed to usurp his authority. But if he told you that, people don't care. He can't even tell you that. So he gives you a bunch of other baby talk to try to get you to understand it's a bad thing to do. No, no. No murder. Bad. Here's divorce issues. You want to get practical? You don't care whether or not God looks stupid in the world's eyes when your partner is abusing you. You don't care whether or not God's image is displayed clearly when your spouse is a jerk every day and your life is a living hell. You don't care whether or not some grand scheme is occurring when your partner is cheating on you. Am I being honest? Of course not. So we determine whether or not we will get divorced based on whether or not it's a harm to us or a benefit to us. Do you understand? That is not on God's radar. We're making decisions with the wrong spectrum. And I wonder if it could be any different. Listen, God does not want you in an unhealthy relationship. But the answer isn't to get out. It's to fix the relationship. But he, but he, but she, but she. All right, then. I guess God is going to have to get involved. You're absolutely right. No, it's not okay for them to be a psycho in your household. No, it's not okay for them to treat you the way they treat you. No, it's not okay for you to act the way that you do. I understand divorce. You guys, I've been through so many counseling sessions. When we got to the end of it, I went, you know what? I'd rather you guys hurry up and get divorced because you are destroying each other. Is that God's way? It is not, and I will not counsel that way. But boy, does it feel like it. I've been through so many counseling situations where I can't see the other side. I don't know how we got here, and I don't know how to get out. But I want you to understand something. God gets so serious and so strong about the matter because of high-level reasons, because of what He's doing in the world. And that needs to become more important to us. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father...
May we understand that the actions that we do in our private lives affect everyone else. That how we treat those in our family affect our relationship with you. That how we treat our children may or may not block our prayers to you. Father, may we begin to treat those in our families, those in our communities with respect and with love. Restore in us a healthy heart. Restore in us your spirit and bring to life the fire inside that is Jesus. That we may renew and get involved with our relationship again to heal, to make it strong. To learn what it is to forgive, to learn what it is to wrestle, to learn what it is to set boundaries, to learn what it is to be mature. Father, many of us are hurting right here, right now. I ask that you would put your soothing salve upon our aching hearts. Those of us that are broken, would you put us back together piece by piece? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.